All right, if you've got your Bible, a turn with me, Colossians chapter 2. We're still making our way through this incredible epistle. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 8, the title of our message today, Don't Be Fooled. During the 1800s, there were discoveries of gold and silver in California, Colorado, and the Dakotas that enticed thousands of city slickers from the east to go west in search of fortune. While some prospectors indeed did hit the mother load in the gold rush, there were others who saw an opportunity to get rich quick without ever picking up a shovel. These schemers and con men inspired the famous American writer Mark Twain to say that a mine is nothing more than a hole in the ground with a liar on top. <laughs> now one such swindler who became notorious for duping treasure seekers was William Lovell. Lovell, or Chicken Bill, as he was called in the Wild West, came up with a clever strategy to sell dried-up mines to suckers. His method was called salting the mine. And here's how it would work. Lovell would purchase a piece of land, and then he would hire some workers to go dig a mine shaft. And then he would go into the mine with a shotgun, and he would load the charge with gold or silver, and then he would blast the walls of the shaft, impregnating them with particles of gold. And because gold was malleable, or is malleable, the gold would embed itself in the rock and thus give the worthless mine a mineralized facade. And Lovell would then take the mine and he would show it to the naive, unsuspecting Easterners who had been bit with gold rush fever. And they would, of course, fight over themselves to buy the mine at an inflated price. With cash in hand, Lovell, or Chicken Bill, would then take off to the next town and repeat the same scam. <laughs> and it, the story goes that eventually, Lovell's infamous reputation as a cheater came back to haunt him because... He was found out. Nobody would do business with him. And the story goes that he died a miserable, penniless drunk. Now, that's not tall tale. That's actual history. Now, if you've ever been suckered by a quick-talking salesman, maybe you bought a lemon or you bought an appliance that didn't work out, you understand how frustrating that can be. It's one thing to buy a lemon and lose a few hundred bucks. But it's a real tragedy to be conned by a spiritual huckster. You see, because the consequences in that case can be eternally damning. Now, our world is filled with all kinds of William Lovell type characters who peddle spiritual scams on the unsuspecting. False teachers and high-sounding philosophies have conned people from every walk of life, from the ivory tower academic to the brainwashed cult member. And you have to remember that Satan has had thousands of years to mix in error with the truth so that it is believable and seems innocuous. But as you know, it only takes a little bit of error to be deadly. Consider some of the false religions in our world. There's Richard Dawkins, the God Delusion, his recent book on atheism. There's 
uh, Islam and all the offshoots like ISIS that we've seen. We know the names of the cults like David Koresh and the Branch Davidians, the Heaven's Gate cult, Jim Jones, Scientology. I could go on and on about all of the ways we could be fooled. It only takes a little error to be deadly, though. It's like what I heard John Ankerberg say one time. 98% of rat poison is wholesome food. It's the other 2% that kills. When I was in seminary, I took a class called Cults and New Religions. And at the time, that class was taught by the world most renowned expert in the field, Dr. Ron Rhodes. And my jaw nearly dropped to the floor when on the first day of class, he told us that a large percentage of people who joined a cult, like the Jehovah's Witness, or the Scientologists, or the Mormons, had formerly attended an evangelical church. In fact, he reported that according to his life of research, that 40% of cultists had backgrounds in a mainline Protestant denomination. In other words, the people that went to cults grew up in Church of God, Baptists, Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, they grew up in a mainline Protestant denomination. But then he said this. In one of his books, Dr. Rhodes claimed that the increase in cult membership is a direct failure on the part of the church to teach sound doctrine. Cults, he said, are the unpaid bills of the church. Now, with so many charlatans running amok in our world, that is why Paul is compelled in this passage to warn the Colossians, and by association, us today, don't be fooled. Here in the heart of Colossians 2, Paul gives the reason for which he wrote this letter, and it is to implore us to be on the lookout, as it were, for salted minds in man-made philosophy, in religion, and the promise out there in the world of big treasure, spiritually speaking, that will leave you high and dry and empty. So our message today is don't be fooled. And in this passage, Paul talks to us in verse 8, if you're taking notes, number 1, about the emptiness of human reasoning. The emptiness of human reason. Let's read verse 8. Eight together. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now let me explain to you what was going on in the first century when Paul wrote this letter. In Colossae, there was a popular cult that had made inroads into the church. They were called the Gnostics. They were a hodgepodge of Greek philosophy and mysticism and Christianity. Now that title, Gnosticism, it comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And the Gnostics believed that salvation comes from the discovery of a secret knowledge that would then lead to a spiritual awakening. So the Gospel says... That salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. But the Gnostics came in with a heretical teaching which said, No, you need to add human wisdom through the equation. It's our truth that will help enlighten you and lead to salvation. Now the popular encyclopedia on Christian apologetics defined Gnosticism this way. Here's the textbook 
wording. Gnostics saw the material world as a prison for the God spirit in each person. This divine spark longs to escape the body and return to the place of origin. A spiritual awakening is needed to recognize that the Gnostic does not belong to this world and salvation comes by knowledge of one's divine origin. Now, you could see why that teaching would be so attractive to the flesh nature of man who wouldn't want to be told, oh, you're a little God, you just don't know it. And in fact, that same lie has been repackaged and it's in our culture still today through New Age mysticism. It's still in our culture and it in fact is even being preached from some pulpits where they talk about the prosperity gospel and the fact that uh, you are a, a little God, a little version of God. And friend, that's just heresy. It's straight out of the pit. In fact, it's straight from the mouth of Satan himself who said in Genesis 3 when he deceived Adam and Eve, hey, you can be like God, knowing good from evil. Satan is very good at taking an old lie, painting a fresh coat of paint over it, and selling it to another generation. Now, Paul says here in verse 8, very literally, in fact, in the Greek, he tells them, don't be kidnapped by man-made philosophies. When he says, don't be held captive, literally what the text says is, don't be kidnapped. Today, the church is not only battling the remnants of the Gnostic lie, but think about all the other empty philosophies that are out in the atmosphere that are being pumped into our minds through television, social media, and so on. We have atheism. We have Marxism. We have Darwinism. We have postmodernism. We have critical race theory. We have the LBGT agenda. And friend, I could spend literally weeks and weeks trying to address all of these empty human philosophies. But instead of doing that, let me just point out to you two general truths that the Bible teaches us about all of humanistic reasoning and, and philosophical attempts to reach God. I want you to notice with me under this heading the foolishness of man-made philosophy. The foolishness of it. Look at what it says in Romans 1.21. This is a parallel passage where Paul writes about the darkened sinful mind that rejects God. What happens to the man or woman who hardens their heart and rejects God and tries to pursue their own way of thinking? Well, Romans 1.21 says, Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, watch this, because they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. How much does that describe America in 2021? Now, for centuries, man has tried to plumb the depths of the mysteries of the universe. The big questions are asked, where do we come from? Why are we here? What is right and wrong? What is the meaning of life? Origin, meaning, morality, purpose, destiny. Those are the big questions that every worldview must answer in some way. And since the days of Socrates and Plato, the ancient Greek philosophers, man has been trying to attempt to answer these lofty questions. But, you know, the intellectuals have not been able to lead us closer to the truth, have they? I've been to the university. I've spent four years there. And, friend, I'm telling you, the answers that they have are not very enlightening. 
In fact, they lead to foolishness and despair. I'm not anti-educational. Go and get your learning or whatever degree you need, but go in with the understanding that it is in the tradition of Romans 1.21, feudal thinking, especially if you step into the philosophy class. I spent several semesters studying the so-called great thinkers, Plato, Aristotle, Rene Descartes, David Hume, Immanuel Kant. And the best way that I can describe those semesters in those classrooms is over the past 2,500 years, human philosophy is a case of the blind leading the blind. <laughs> it doesn't really lead anywhere that I want to go. And the reason is because most of philosophy is built on the fallible understanding of man and not the revelation of God. In fact, Paul calls it in here in verse 8 of Colossians 2, he calls it human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world. You see, most philosophy, most human reasoning is wrong because they have a wrong starting point. They start with atheism or humanism, where man is the measure of all things. And friend, when you start out like that, it's like cutting off the branch upon which you are sitting. Because if you reject the Creator God, then how can you ever know anything about the purpose and meaning of life if you reject the one who made it? The author gets to determine the meaning, right? The Creator gets to determine the design and the purpose. And when you reject that wholesale, you're going to get everything else wrong. A few years ago, there was a, a scholar named Dr. Hugh Moorhead. He was a philosophy professor at Northeastern University. He took a task upon himself that he was going to write the definitive volume answering the big question, what is the purpose of life? And to do this, he wrote 250 of the world's brightest minds, scientists, philosophers, intellectuals, engineers, and so on. And he asked them a question. What is the purpose of life? Write back to me and tell me what you have learned. He compiled all of his research into a book. Some of the intellectuals, all they could do was offer their best guesses. Love your fellow man. Uh, be kind to one another. Uh, love your family. Uh, do good, and so on. Others admitted they were clueless. Ironically, though, several of the professors even asked Moorhead, when you do find out what is the meaning of life, be sure and write me back and tell me what it is. And these are the people sitting atop the classes in our universities teaching and indoctrinating our young people, and they don't even know the reason for why they're here on planet Earth. God help us. Now in 2021, can't we see the foolishness of man-made philosophy in our world today? How that when you reject God's design for life, all that results from that is you become a blind man groping around in the darkness, searching. That's where we are today in our society. We have evolution, which argues that man is the product of time plus matter plus chance about the same as saying that a tornado can blow through a junkyard and put together a fully assembled working 747 jumbo jet. 
I mean, friend, it doesn't take a lot of intelligence to look at the creativity and the beauty and the wisdom in the design of life and understand that there has to be a creator. There has to be a designer. I'm not just electrified pond scum that's been evolved over thousands of years, but I'm created and you're created in the image of God. Don't drink the Kool-Aid that the world is trying to sell you. We have the LBGT agenda which denies basic biology for fantasy. They tell us there's more than two sexes. Well, friend, that's not biology. That's fantasy. And they say that if, you, if a man thinks he's a woman, then we have to play along with his delusion or else we're the hater. We're the homophobe. We're the transphobe or whatever label you want to put on it. Friend, don't be fooled. God made them in the beginning male and female no matter how bad the world wants to change it or what legislation they put in order to try and rearrange reality to their twisted and warped agenda, friend, don't be fooled. We live in a society that will pass legislation that declares it illegal to kill a speckled minnow and yet turn around and by the highest court in the land say that it is legal and profitable to kill the unborn. Hug a tree, kill a baby. Is our thinking foolish and darkened yet? We have a woke culture that says there's systemic racism. And I, I am not saying that all racism has been done away with. Certainly it will always be a part of the human situation because there's always sin in the human heart. But we have a culture that gets it wrong that says the way that you end racism is you have white people repent of their whiteness. Friend, why can't we come back to the gospel where it says that we're made in the image of God and that there's really only one race, it's the human race, and that Jesus Christ died yellow, black, and white. They are precious in His sight. And that heaven is going to be a place where there's all languages, cultures, backgrounds, kingdoms, tribes, and tongues. Friend, that's, that's the way you deal with the racism problem in America. It's not a, another form of racism. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which says that, that God loves us. And that it's not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. You see, when you deny God and you adopt a man-made philosophy, the inevitable result is that we live in a foolish contradiction. By the way, speaking of foolishness, I heard about two neighbors who were having a discussion in the backyard about God, one Christian and one an unbeliever. The unbeliever says, hey, if your God is so wise and powerful, why did he make the mighty oak tree to hold up such a, a small acorn and the watermelon is nourished by such a small flimsy vine? Why did your God, if he was so wise, why did he make it that way? And the believer didn't really know what to say at that moment. About that time, whoosh, powerful gust of wind came through. It blew an acorn off the tree overhead, and it came down, and it hit the skeptic on the noggin. The Christian saw that, and he said, Well, thank God that wasn't a watermelon, right? <laughs> the foolishness of man's thinking, right? We think we're smarter than God, and that we know how to do things better than the designer. God help us. That's why Paul says, Don't be fooled. Not only the foolishness of man-made philosophy, but the hopelessness of man-made philosophy. Look at what 
Uh, Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. Human reason ultimately leads to despair because every philosopher apart from the revelation of God has one giant problem. What do I do with death? The grave's coming for me. Is there any hope beyond? And man unaided by the revelation of God has no answer to that. It's disturbing to me and revealing that we live in the most technologically advanced and prosperous generation ever in history, and yet we have the highest suicide rate. Can you explain that to me? In 2020, loneliness, depression, and mental health problems skyrocketed due to the harsh lockdowns imposed by the government to curb the spread of COVID-19. We all lived through it. We know it well. But you know what a side effect of that was? The CDC reported that there was a 60% jump during that period in teenage suicides. Could you imagine being 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, your whole life ahead of you, and all you can think about is the despair and ending your life? And yet we've got all these gadgets, all this technology, all these things to try and fill the void in our lives, and one in four young people are saying, I've considered ending it all. Because they don't have hope. It's not in Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or getting more likes on social media. It won't fill the void. They said that in Japan it was discovered that during certain months more people were taking their lives than were dying of the virus. It's a culture of hopelessness. Which is why we need Jesus Christ who holds the keys of death in Hades and who said, because I live, you can live also. History tells of the, the story of the infamous skeptic and philosopher Voltaire. Don't waste your time reading his books. I had to. There's not much there that we can glean. But he said in one book that I read about him, Voltaire spent his last days in agony, cursing God and fearing death. The physician who waited on the bedside of Voltaire said that at his death, the man cried out with utter desperation, I'm abandoned by God and man. And doctor, I will give you all that I am worth if you will but give me six months to live. Brilliant, learned, hopeless. A nurse who attended by the bed of Voltaire said, For all the wealth in Europe, I would not see another atheist die. God help us to shine the light into our dark world and help them to see the only answer is a bloody cross and a risen Savior and an empty tomb. Don't be fooled by the emptiness of human reasoning. Paul moves on, and I move on. Number two, from the emptiness of human reasoning to number two, the excellence of divine revelation. And oh, brother and sister, if there was ever a passage to charge our batteries, listen to this. Verse 9, we'll read it together and we'll stop. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You see, what the philosophers did not realize is that the answer to all their deepest questions are found in the person, the mission, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And Paul is actually making an argument from the lesser to the greater to this church. He's saying, look, Colossians, why would you try and eat off the crumbs of man's table when you already have Christ and in Him are all the fullness of wisdom and knowledge? Now, in a few lines, verses 9 and 10, Paul makes three tremendous theological statements here. Over and against the emptiness of human reasoning, he says, set all of that aside, don't be deceived by it, but instead turn your focus and your gaze on the God-man. And in Him, you'll find everything you're looking for. What does he say here? Well, at first in verse 9, he teaches about the deity of Christ. Notice what he said, therefore, in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells. How do you know Christ is God? Apart from the Scripture. Well, we have His prophecies. We have His power. We have His purity. And we have His pronouncements. Christ fulfilled hundreds of prophecies written hundreds of years in advance before He ever came on the world scene. That There's no way that those can be fulfilled by accident. Like when He would die, how He would die, where He would be born, to the family that He would belong to. He fulfilled hundreds of prophecies. And therefore I know that He is the Son of God. Second, he demonstrated his power through his many miracles, the greatest of which was his resurrection from the dead. And friend, if you don't believe it, just go over to Jerusalem, find the tomb, and you'll see that it is still empty to this day. Third, he was sinless, or his purity. You know, even the people who hated Jesus the most could not bring a charge against him. That says something to me about his purity, his righteousness, his holiness, and then... His prophecies, power, purity, His pronouncements. Have you noticed the claims that Jesus made? Nobody claims to be God unless you're deluded or deceiver or unless you're divine. Nobody could say the things and, and, and do the things that Jesus did unless He truly was the heaven-sent Son of God. He knew only things that God could know. For example, He predicted His own death and resurrection. He said, I'm going up to Jerusalem where the the scribes and the the Romans and the Jews will plot against me. They'll kill me, but I'll rise on the third day. Who says something like that? Unless you're God and you have the power to lay your life down and take it back up again. He predicted the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Right down to the very manner in which that temple would be destroyed. Why? Because He's the Son of God. Remember what what, uh, Jesus said to to Peter after he made that bold confession in Matthew 16? Remember that great passage? Jesus asked his disciples, Who do they say that I am? And they offered all different kinds of speculation and popular polling. And then he turned to Peter and he said, But Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, You are the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Notice, Blessed are you Simon Barjona? Watch this. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You didn't arrive at that conclusion, Peter, by going to a seminary. You didn't get it at a university. You didn't watch a video online and learn it. You didn't go to a library and understand it. But God the Father in heaven opened up your mind and revealed it to you. What's the point? The point is this. Peter was just a fisherman. He was no scholar, and yet God hides His most precious truth from the proud and reveals 
his truth to the humble. Love the story that I put up on Facebook a couple of weeks ago. Brother Michael and I had the privilege of going across town and visiting a, a, a family. And there we were meeting with a young man who had, had been visiting the church for a while. I went to the uh, youth retreat in Gatlinburg with Brother Michael. And Michael was telling me that he could tell that God was really starting to work on this young man. And we got together with him and he was hungry. He was asking questions. And uh, we began to share the gospel with him. And I began to just probe a little bit to see where he was spiritually. And I learned that uh, this young man, uh, he started out as an atheist. You imagine being 15, 16 years old, and that's your starting point, that there is no God. That's where so many of our young people are today. And uh, he began to fill me in on the details of his background. And I said, okay, so you started out as an atheist, but where are you now? He said, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus Christ. It didn't come by flesh and blood, but it came down from the Father in heaven. That's the way the gospel works, right? The eyes are opened. The hardness of heart breaks down. The arguments that we hold up against God crumble under the weight of evidence and we have to give in to the Holy Spirit and say, it's true. He is who He said He was. He's God. He's risen. He's Savior. And I need Him and I want Him. I have so many friends who at one time were kidnapped, were held captive by the empty philosophies of man until one day when Jesus Christ, strong and mighty, came by and changed their life and they met the way, the truth, and the life. I could take you to a friend today who at one time was a hopeless skeptic. He wandered from one belief system to another looking for some kind of hope, some kind of answer in his life. He'd given in to total skepticism. And then one day, he found something that he couldn't disprove. It was the empty tomb. It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today, the friend that I'm talking about is a preacher. And he's preaching the glorious gospel of our Lord. I could talk to you about a friend of mine that I grew up with who worshipped the Norse gods. I'm talking about Odin and Thor and the gods of the Vikings. He was a wicked, he was a witch, he was a pagan. And today, by the glory of Jesus Christ, he was rescued by, from the emptiness of that philosophy. And he's a Christ follower. I could tell you about another friend of mine who was so deep into the Aryan Brotherhood a friend of mine who was a Nazi in the mentality and in the philosophy. He was hardcore racist. He was also a helpless druggie. And then one day, he hit rock bottom and he got down on the dirty, cold prison floor where he was and said, God, if there's anything left of my life, you can have it. Jesus, save me from my sin. That's my God. The best apologetic that I have for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ is look at the transformed lives. Look at the atheists who are believers. Look at the druggies who are cleaned up. Look at the lives that are transformed. He has to be God. Because only God can take an old, dirty, washed up sinner whose mind is twisted and distorted and give him a new heart and a new life for him. I'm not talking about just a dusty stuff out of, a, out of an irrelevant book. I'm talking about the Lord of glory changing hearts and lives. 
So many people say it ain't real and miracles aren't possible. Well, friends, sit down and let me tell you a little bit about my life story and I'll show you a walking miracle about what God can do in somebody's life. The deity of Christ. Oh, friend, then notice this. The humanity of Christ also in verse 9. Notice this one word. For in Him dwells the fullness of deity. Watch it. Bodily. That one word. So important. Jesus was just as much God as if He were not man at all and just as much man as if He were not God at all. Athanasius, the great church father, said this, The incarnation of Christ was not the subtraction of deity, but the addition of humanity. We have a sympathizing Savior because He's fully God and because He's 100% man, He knows what it is like to walk a mile in your shoes. He's in every way touched by the infirmities of this world, yet without sin. He knows what it's like to feel rejection, to suffer pain and loss, to be cast aside by the world. My Jesus knows Because He's a God with wounds who can sympathize with your great need. You see, if He, Jesus, were just God, He could create us, but He would never be able to sympathize with us. And if Jesus were just man, He might sympathize with us, but He could never save us. But as the God-man, He can be both Creator and Redeemer. And when you talk about the Incarnation, friend, it's a riddle. Wrapped inside a mystery, inside an enigma. As God-man, He could say, I'm as ageless as my father, and yet I'm older than my mother. As man, He got hungry, and yet as God, He could say, I am the bread of life, give me the fishes and the loaves, and then feed the 5,000. As man, He could say, the foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay His head. And then, as God, He could turn around and say, but in my Father's house are many rooms. As man, He said, I do not know the day or the hour of my return. And yet, as God, He stood beside a well and talked to a Samaritan woman and told her every single detail about her life. As man, he was crucified, spit upon, hated. He died and was buried. But as God, he rose again on the third day, conquering with victory and power for you and me. I don't understand it all. And if I could, it would be a God on my level. And friend, I don't need that. I need a God who's higher than I am, who's above my level of thinking, who can rescue me from my foolishness and from my hopelessness. And there is a person in Jesus Christ and His empty tomb. His deity, His humanity. And then look at this, verse 10. And will be done. Verse 10, the sufficiency of Christ. Watch this. And you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. I love the way the old King James renders it. And you may be reading from that version of the Bible. And it says there, And ye are complete in Him. There is nothing lacking in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 
You ought to reference with this 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 where it says this. His divine power has granted to us all the things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, what the text is saying, we don't need to add anything to make Christ more appealing, beautiful, and authoritative than He already is. His gospel is complete. His work is complete. His salvation is great. His throne is high and lifted up. Everything, friend, that you've ever needed to live the Christian life became yours the moment you repented and you believed in Him. That's what Paul says. Look, you're, you're complete in Him. You don't need to go to the broken cisterns of the world to try and find something to add to the gospel because it's already done. It's already great. It's already spectacular and mind-blowing that God would love you that way. You see, when you believed, God became your heavenly Father. The Son became your Savior. The Holy Spirit became your ever-present helper. The Word of God became your, your light and your guide. The church became your forever family. You're complete in Him. C.S. Lewis said it like this. In the weight of glory, he said this. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. Don't look at me just in the flesh. Don't look at me just at my bank account. Don't look at me just at my earthly portfolio and all the things that you see because I'm not living just by sight. I'm living by faith. And according to the Word of God, I have an inheritance in heaven that moth and rust can't touch, that thieves can't break in and steal. It's undefiled, incorruptible, reserved for heaven for me. Praise God. So Paul's message to the Colossians, don't be fooled. There's nothing for you out there in the, the emptiness of man's thinking. It can't add to what you already possess in Jesus Christ. Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know, fills my every longing, keeps me singing as I go. Complete in Him, the sufficiency of Christ. I read a story a long time ago that I think fits here. It goes back to the days of European immigration to America when people from Europe would get on the boat and take the long ride across the Atlantic in search for another opportunity and for all that America represented. And the story goes that there was a family on this boat. They were setting sail for America. Once at sea, they began to ration the little lunchbox of food that they had with them. Cheese and bread. They thought, well, this is going to be a many days journey and we'll have to ration this among our kids. Well, after three days, the little boy started complaining to his daddy. He said, Daddy, I'm, I'm so tired of eating these old moldy cheese sandwiches. If I don't eat something else, Daddy, before I get to the United States... I think I'm just going to die. And if you've ever taken your family on a long vacation, you know what that sounds like from the back seat. Amen? When are we going to get there? So this dad, to shut up his son, gave, gave the last little nickel that he had. And he said, son, go to, the, go to the ship's galley and buy whatever you want there. And make sure that when you bring it back, you bring enough to share with your brothers and sisters. 
Well, the story goes that the boy went away for a long time and he returned. He had a big smile on his face. And as he was walking back to his family, he was licking an ice cream cone. Dad said to his son, 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 said, son, where were you? He said, Dad, I was in the ship's galley and I had three ice cream cones and a hamburger dinner. He said, you telling me, son, you got all that for a nickel? He said, no. He said, when I started talking to the captain and I started talking to the cook and I gave them my money, they said, you don't need that. Show us your ticket. I showed them the ticket and they said, all the meals you want come with the ticket. What's the point? The point is this. Have you ever looked at the fine print of your salvation ticket, friend? Uh, oh, look at what all is in there. You're complete in Him. Uh, you don't have to live as a pauper on the empty philosophies and thinking of the world. Uh, friend, there's grace for daily living. There's fresh mercy and forgiveness when you fall. There's spiritual gifts for service. There's endurance for the trials ahead. Uh, there's strength to resist the enemy's temptations. And friend, most of all, when you're standing at death's door, there's hope because you know the one who's on the other side. He's risen. He's powerful. Powerful, and He'll take you through into eternity. God has given us everything we need to live on this side of eternity and more than we can imagine beyond. And we are complete in Him. And Paul wrote that and said, Hey church, check your ticket stub. Make sure you're familiar what's on, on the fine print. And don't eat the sawdust crumbs of the world. Because what my king has is enough for you. Amen? That's what our world needs to hear today.